Welcome to the Story Discovery Podcast. I'm your co-host, J.W. McAteer. Coming up, you'll hear a new work from our free online publication, Etched Onyx. Please join me and co-host Melissa Collings after the reading when we talk with the author about their work and all things writing and otherwise. The Story Discovery Podcast is sponsored by Scrivener. I've been using Scrivener since 2014, and I never looked back. It's an amazing tool for writers, and then it lets you build research in the same document that you're doing your work. You can put in images and PDFs. You can organize your work using the corkboard view. You can set goals. You can export it to multiple formats, including ebook and manuscript. There's really nothing Scrivener can't do in the writing universe, and I highly recommend it, which is why I'm so pleased that they're a sponsor. If you'd like to check them out, you can follow the link from our website or just type Scrivener into your search engine. Our listeners get a 20% discount by using the coupon code STORYDISCOVERY at checkout. If you're a writer and you haven't tried Scrivener, I highly recommend it. Give Scrivener a try. You won't regret it. This podcast and all related materials are a production of Onyx Publications. All works, stories, and poems are copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Hey, listeners. We are so excited to let you know that the next several shows we'll be talking with the winners of our winter edition contest. Melissa and I would first like to thank our guest judges, Becky Hinshaw and Christopher Clancy, for their tireless work in the difficult task of selecting the top stories and poems. We would also like to thank each writer and poet who submitted their works for consideration in our first ever contest. We know writing and submitting can be a daunting experience and we appreciate the opportunity to read your work. We wish all of you a prolific 2022. On today's show, we'll hear one of our honorable mentions, A Bargain at Twice the Price, written by Rebecca Cuthbert and narrated by Meredith Lyons. Settle in and enjoy. If you had known Beth would leave two months after the closing date, you would never have bought the shoebox starter home on Oakview Drive in a sleepy commuter town with one shitty pizza joint and two convenience stores and nothing to do on weekends but hang out at the Rat Hole Townie Bar drinking too much bottom-shelf whiskey. If you had known Beth would find you so utterly lacking as a man and a human and a partner that she would look at you with such disappointment that shame would rush down to the soles of your feet and back up to the roots of your red hair, You'd never would have proposed on that trip to the Keys with the ring you bought with your third-to-last paycheck from the cable company that would soon lay you off due to unforeseeable market shifts. You are a customer service agent. Now you're a chump, and according to Beth, an alcoholic. If you'd known all that and more, you wouldn't be sitting shirtless and hungover on your tiny front porch in pajama pants, drinking your fourth cup of black coffee— watching Tim across the street water his half-dead lawn for the third day in a row. You wouldn't be hoping for someone to walk down the sidewalk with a dog or two or maybe a fugly baby just to have something interesting to look at. But you didn't know. So here you are, tits out, 
and Tim just waved at you so you raise your coffee cup in an oddly formal salute and get ready for the nothingness of the day to settle into your bones like a damp chill. You call Beth a lot, sometimes twice a week, sometimes more. She doesn't answer. You leave messages. Last night, at the sound of the beep, you said, Five years of talking every damn day is too long to talk every day and then stop talking every day, Beth. Beth. You hope she knew what you meant, that she even listened to the message. Maybe you should leave her another one later today, you think, just in case. The Help Wanted section of the local paper is a joke. Ten listings most weekends, half of them for babysitting gigs. You are not good with children. Which is one of your faults, also, according to Beth. You don't know how to nurture, she'd said. And you didn't bother to argue. At first glance, today's paper seems like more of the same shit. Your eyes wander to the window, not really seeing anything until a flash of red catches your attention. It's a cardinal, the color of Beth's favorite nail polish, hopping branch to branch in the yellow-blooming shrub in your side yard. He flaps his wings like a signal and looks right at you, one beady black eye returning your stupid slack-mouthed gaze. He flaps his wings again, juts his beak. Fuck you, you say to the bird. It puffs its chest. Fuck you and fuck every one of your goddamn feathers. You're kind of yelling now. And you stand up to shake your fist, knocking over the dregs of a cold cup of coffee. The liquid spills across the newspaper. You look down, and that's when you see it. The ad is in bold print, and so brief it feels like a message from the universe, or at least a fortune cookie platitude. You look back up. The cardinal fixes its eye on you again and then flies away. You sit and read. Landscape worker needed. Must have truck. There is a phone number. Except you don't have a truck, so it's another dead end. You have an aging Corolla because Beth drove the Subaru and she took that with her when she left. You were going to replace your car this summer when you two got caught up on a few bills. But Beth had wanted the new counters in the kitchen and then the job thing happened. A day later, though, when you glance away from Tim and his garden hose, you see that shithead cardinal again. Perched on top of a 90s model Chevy pickup parked next door. The bird flaps its wings, pins you with that smug look. You give it the finger. It seems to square its bird shoulders and whistles back at you. The truck is a two-tone green with rust on the back. Make offer written in shaky script on a sign taped to the windshield. You glance back at the bird, and it flies away. The old lady who lives there is named Carolyn. You've seen her get the mail and take her trash out Wednesday nights. She's hunched over and probably weighs less than a fart. Tim told you her husband died before you moved to the neighborhood. Cursing the bird under your breath, and also yourself for being a moron who listens to birds... You go inside your house, set your coffee cup in the sink, and put on a shirt. Then you head next door to knock on Caroline's door with a flutter in your gut that you can't place. She opens it seconds later, peering up through wavy, blonde-gray hair. Her eyes are a faded green. Yes, she says. You tell her your name is Sean, 
and that you recently moved next door, but of course she already knows that last part. She nods. You stammer and apologize and say you couldn't help but notice the truck for sale, then wonder why you have to make everything so fucking awkward. It was my husband's, Carolyn says, not seeming to mind that you're a bumbling idiot. She has one hand on the doorknob like she needs it for balance. Skips. It's been at my son's, but he got a new one, and he doesn't want this one now. I can't drive it. Nowhere to go, anyway. You strain to catch all of this because her voice is thin and reedy. I'm interested, you say, and you try to guess how terrible of a person you are if you lowball an old woman. And then you think, maybe that just confirms what Beth said about how you're basically selfish and basically immature and how you can't go through life not wanting to contribute to the greater good or some crap like that. You wait for Carolyn to respond, to name a price so high that it will kill this whole stupid idea. She doesn't, so you throw out a number that is half what's in your bank account right now. How about 1200 you say, and cringe inside. You know nothing about trucks or their value. What do you want it for? Carolyn says. It's not exactly mint condition. Work, you say, which is more hopeful than factual, thinking of the job ad. I need a truck. Are you a good worker? Carolyn asks. You know it's at least half a lie, but you say, sure. Because you somehow understand that a woman like this would not respect a man like you if he told the truth. Skip liked working, she says, looking past you to the driveway where the truck is parked. You look that way, too. The fucking bird is back. He mowed the lawn and painted this house. Fixed what broke. Good with his hands and tools. Are you? She looks at you again. Absolutely, you say, meeting her eyes. There are four tools in your toolbox in the hallway closet, and you're counting a flashlight as a tool. You can have it for a thousand, she says. It needs a tune-up and stalls if you try to go above fifty-five. And you'll need to clean out the cab. You're surprised when she reaches out a crimped hand to shake on the deal. But you take it, and it feels like worn cotton fabric. It is the first time you've touched anyone soft in months, and your eyes fill, and you look away and say you'll come by later with cash and walk back to your house, flip-flop slapping on the driveway. Then you call the number on the ad and talk to a man named Frank. In a few days, you'll become a landscaper. Later that night, you call Beth from the bar because you want to give her the good news. You haven't had good news in a long time. She doesn't answer. You leave a message, going on so long that you get cut off, so you call back and leave another message just to say good night. On Monday, you roll up to Frank's pole barn in the truck you haven't cleaned or tuned up yet, feeling lighter than you have in weeks, like there are pebbles in your stomach instead of rocks. You get out and walk over to where three men are standing. 
You introduce yourself and shake their hands, which are rough and hard and not like Carolyn's at all. Then you don't know what to do, so you cross your arms with your fingers in your armpits and rock back on your heels. Sneakers aren't a good idea, bud, says Frankie, who is Frank's son. Frankie's tall and muscly, but has eyes like a baby cow's. He's looking at your shoes. Lose a toe that way. Gotta get you some good boots. You glance at your feet, and then theirs, all safe in leather and steel, and feel like a dumbass and nod and say you'll get some tonight. Then you wonder how you'd lose a toe. How would I lose a toe? You ask. Weed whackers, chainsaws, size, you know, says Chad, the other guy. He's short and all his features are clumped together in the middle of his face. Oh, yeah, you say, and add a little psh sound like you're not even that worried about losing toes anyway. At home, your weed whacker is electric and you have never touched a chainsaw and what the fuck is a sigh? We'll put Greeny on the seed spreader today says Frank, who looks more like a pudgy biker to you than the owner of a small landscaping business. Chad, you're with Greeny. Frankie, with me. Load up. You understand that you are Greeny, and the nickname is a dick slap, but you nod and fake a smile. You hope you won't have to ask Chad how to work a seed spreader, that for once you'll be able to figure out something on your own. You are driving home that night with the windows open to the cold wind, trying to blow out the musty smell lingering in the truck cab. Skip was a smoker. The ashtray is still full, which you remind yourself to clean. Soon. But your freckly pale skin burned like forgotten toast today, even in half-assed spring sunshine, and it's making you shiver. You give up and hand-crank the window closed, then reach to do the same on the passenger side at a stoplight. At this moment, a blend of smells fills the cab. Traces you didn't catch before. Cigarette smoke, sure, but also wood shavings. Old spice. Black coffee. You decide it's not unpleasant. You wonder what it would be like to smell that competent. Most days you know you smell like whiskey sweat. When you pull into your driveway, you sit still for several minutes hands on the leather-wrapped steering wheel, breathing deeply. The porch light winks off next door, and you go inside like that's what you were waiting for. You are tired, so when you call Beth, you only leave a short message. Hi, Beth, you say. I just got home from work. Coming home from work is less fun when you aren't here. I should have guessed it would feel like this. It's Friday afternoon and you are sore and pissed off helping Chad unload the truck that still feels like Skip's truck. You haven't cleaned it. In your first week, you got a sunburn on top of a sunburn. You haven't used your muscles like this in the decades since high school or maybe ever. You're plagued by hay fever. There's a patch of poison ivy on your left knee. Yesterday, you caught your right shin with a live weed whacker string, and it bled like rare prime rib. You bent a push mower blade running over a tree root today, and Frank says he's docking your pay to fix it. Every night, you've skipped the bar, because all you want to do is shower and fall into your bed. 
Frank wants trucks loaded and out by 7 a.m., which means you have to be at his place by 6.30. This is the worst job you've ever had, and you are failing at it. I'm fucking spent, you say to Chad as you lift down a wheelbarrow together. I don't know about this manual labor, blue-collar, redneck bullshit. You grab half a bag of weed and feed and plop it into the wheelbarrow, then try to wipe the sweat from your face with your sweaty forearm. Chad's smushed face puckers. What's wrong with manual labor? He asks. You too good for it, college boy? He hops into the truck bed to grab shovels and rakes closer to the cab, throwing them down at you instead of to you. A shovel handle catches you in the gut and it doubles you over. You regret telling Chad about your community college certificate in tourism and hospitality. Straightening up, you say, Asshole, through gritted teeth, and then wish you didn't because he hears you and jumps down. I'm not the asshole. You're the asshole, asshole. And maybe this job's too good for you, he says, then spits. It lands on the toe of your right boot. You can barely push a fucking wheelbarrow, you tubby bitch. You don't know if it's the shovel handle and the spit or the sweat and the poison ivy or the simple fact that you can barely push a fucking wheelbarrow because more or less you are a tubby bitch, but you put your hands on Chad's shoulders and shove. He pings off the side of the truck and back at you, knocking into your chest like a medicine ball. You land on your ass in the gravel and dust. Fucker, you say, and stop before adding no fare. You stand as Frankie jogs over, looking worried. His dad is in the barn checking returned items off the equipment list. Hey, bud, he says, glancing from you to Chad and back. What's going on? Everything okay? Greeny here says this job's beneath him, Chad says, crossing his arms. He misses his loafers. I didn't you say. Not in those words. You do miss your loafers. And he shoved me, Chad says, uncrossing his arms. He takes a step towards you. He started it, you say. Then remember that actually you did. Enough, Frankie says, and Chad backs up. Greeny? Frankie's big dumb eyes are sad and you feel like a douche. I didn't mean it, you mumble. Not like that. Your ears and cheeks flame, heating up your sunburn. Shit. Are you going to cry? You turn to close the tailgate, and when you face them again, Frankie's walking away and Chad is smirking. You climb into the truck and start the engine and pull away. And it takes all your self-control not to jam on the gas and spray Chad with gravel. A mile down the road, you stop gripping the steering wheel long enough to smack your palm against the dashboard. Fuck Chad. Why did he have to bring Frankie into it? Frankie, who you think, will probably tell his dad. Frank will fire you this weekend. And all of it will be for nothing. The truck, the $60 boots, your battered body. You tell yourself you're a moron. An idiot for thinking you could turn things around with a landscaping job. For believing you could make anything in your pointless life better. You're thirsty for whiskey, and you deserve it after a week like yours. You have two twenties in your wallet, and that will get you three doubles. Four if you don't tip much. 
your throat aches, and you signal to turn right toward rookies and your usual stool at the end of the bar. But at this moment, a gruff voice in your head that isn't quite yours tells you to go home, that maybe you don't need the booze after all, that you could do with a shower and a meal and sleep instead, that things will seem better in the morning. You blink and roll your window down, letting cool air flood the cab. Get a goddamn grip, you say out loud. First you take life advice from a bird, now you're hearing voices. You just need a drink, you tell yourself. You're thirsty, and it's Friday. You turn into Rookie's parking lot and shut off the ignition. About half past midnight, you pull into your driveway, parking the truck crooked. You sit still for a moment, hands on the wheel thinking of Beth, of the look on her face as she drove away. A sob burbles up in your throat and you clamp your lips shut, locking it in. The porch light winks off next door and you go inside. Before you fall asleep on the couch, fully clothed, boots on, you call Beth. It's 1 a.m. She doesn't answer. Fuck you you say. Then you breathe for a moment. When we can't think of anything else to add, you hang up. Saturday morning, you wake up with cotton mouth and a pounding head. Your belt buckle is digging into your stomach, and your shirt sticks to your back with sweat. You strip off yesterday's work clothes, throw them in a heap in your bedroom, and make a pot of coffee. You pull on a pair of pajama pants, stick your feet into flip-flops, and swallow a few aspirins. Shirtless, you head to the porch with a cup of coffee, up so early that you sit for an hour before Tim comes outside and turns on the hose. Nice farmer's tan, he yells to you, smiling. You look down, noticing the contrast between your pasty belly and red arms. The skin near your wrists is starting to itch and peel. Instead of answering Tim, you go inside and get a shirt and a refill. When you come back out, you see Carolyn dragging a ladder from her garage. A bucket sits on the grass a few feet away, and that fucking cardinal swoops down to perch on the edge of it. Wait! You shout, and it makes your head throb. You don't know what she's doing, but it looks dangerous, so you set your full coffee cup on the porch floor with a groan and jog over. The cut on your leg feels like it has its own pulse. The cardinal flies away. Need to clean out the gutters, she says when you reach her. Every spring, Skip would do it. Spring and fall. How hard can it be? She is wheezing from the ladder-dragging effort. Let me you say, even though it's the last damn thing you want to do today. Carolyn doesn't put up a fight. Suit yourself, she says, but I'll hold the ladder, then we can do yours. You groan on the inside. On the outside, you give her a tight-lipped smile. The two of you get to work. Her twiggy arms don't look like they could do much to keep a ladder steady, but she holds on anyway, saying, Be careful. Every time you go back up to scrape another handful or two of wet leaves and muck into the bucket, you feel like dog shit, and at first you fight both nausea and vertigo, but they subside and you work your way around her house. 
climbing up and down again and again. You're almost done when, on a trip down, your pant leg hitches on a loose screw and hikes up to your knee. Jesus H. Christ, Carolyn says. That's infected. You're on solid ground now and you pull up the pant leg. The cut you got from the weed whacker does look oozy and red. You poke at it with a dirty finger and Carolyn slaps your hand away. Don't be a fool, she says. You'll make it worse. Come inside. You set down the bucket and follow Carolyn in through the side door, across an over-furnished living room, down a hall, and into a pale blue bathroom. It smells like baby powder, and there is a shell-shaped soap in the dish on the sink. Sit, she says, pointing to the toilet. Pull up that pant leg. Oof, you smell like the inside of a whiskey barrel. She takes a barrette from a drawer in the vanity and pins her hair back from her face. Then she washes her hands and gets to work. That's when you learn that Carolyn was a registered nurse for 40 years, first at a grade school, then at a VA clinic. You also learn she is not gentle. She cleans your cut with a soapy washcloth and hard strokes, scraping off the pus-filled scab that formed and bringing tears to your eyes. The soap stings, and when you draw in a sharp breath, she scolds you again. Think that hurts? she asks. Losing a leg would hurt worse. Infection's no joke. Buck up. And you do, since she leaves you no other option. When she deems the cut clean, she slathers on something thick and antiseptic that also stings, then wraps your leg in a gauzy white bandage, securing it with medical tape. Tomorrow, we are going to do this again, she says. You nod your head, tell her thank you, and follow her outside to finish her gutters and start on your own. She lets you use her ladder. Skip's ladder, she calls it, and insists again on holding it steady for you. That night, sober and ashamed, you call Beth. She doesn't answer, but you stopped expecting her too long ago. You stopped even hoping she would. I'm sorry, you say. I don't think I know how to not make things worse. You hang up. Monday morning, you climb into the truck and start the engine with a pooling sense of dread. You haven't heard from Frank. You figure maybe the bastard just wants to fire you in person, wants Frankie and Chad to be there watching. You think about not going at all. Or beating Frank to it, quitting as soon as you see him. Either way, he'll hand you over your first and only paycheck, and then at least there'd be drinking money for the week. About a mile down the road, your nose runs and threatens to drip. You arch your back to reach into your jeans pocket, but you must have forgotten your tissues at home. At a red light, you check the glove box. You find a wad of fast food napkins and a carton full of Seneca's. You're not a smoker, but at this moment, you crave a cigarette more than you've ever craved a drink. Out of habit that isn't quite yours, you stick your hand in the crack of the bucket seat and pull out a Zippo, engraved with an S in swirling script. It lights with one flick. The first drag makes you feel calmer, and by the time you're halfway to the filter, you wonder if last week wasn't so bad after all. Just beginner stuff. If you don't get fired, 
You can grab sunscreen and be less of a dumbass about poison ivy. Take some Benadryl. Be more careful with the weed whacker. When you arrive at Frank's, you tell Chad, Morning! And try to mean it. Frankie walks over and looks at your feet, noticing that you're still in your work boots. He smiles and slaps your back. Frank grins. Still with us then, Greeny? He says, thumbs in his belt loops. Not sure you'd make it. You nod. Where your loafers? asked Chad, trying to keep a straight face. You peel a tab of sunburned skin from your forearm and flick it at him. Frank guffaws. You get to work. You decide against calling Beth that night, but you can't help texting her. Work is going okay, you write and hit send. Then you add, I hope you are doing well. She doesn't reply. Next week, you pull into your driveway after work. It's late April and won't get dark until later, so you have to look hard at Carolyn's porch to see when the light goes out. You know now that she waits up for you, though when you asked her about it a week ago, she seemed irritated. Do you think I can sleep and worry at the same time? She said. Not hardly. Not with my heart. Been waiting up for that truck longer than you've had hair on your chest. Just have it. You smiled but held up your hands in surrender. Just asking, you said. Well, remember what curiosity did to the cat, she said. And the groceries in the car aren't going to bring themselves in. Hurry up. There's ice cream. You love ice cream, so you hurried, hoping she'd share. She did. When the light winks off, you stub out your cigarette and put your Frank's landscaping hat on the passenger seat. You shut off the ignition and go inside. You don't text Beth. By early July, you've smoked eight packs of cigarettes. It doesn't seem that unhealthy to you, since you only smoke three a day. One on the drive to work, one on the way home, and one in the driveway while you wait for Carolyn's porch light to go off. You skip weekends. On Wednesday nights, you knock on Carolyn's door so you can get her trash to put out at the curb. On Sunday afternoons, you use Skip's riding lawnmower to cut Carolyn's grass and then your own. Afterward, the two of you sit on her back deck and have a beer, but just one. Sometimes after work, you go out for sandwiches with Frankie and Chad. Yesterday, Chad picked up the bill. You were celebrating because Frank asked you to stay on past the season. You'll trim and rake in the fall plow and clear roofs in the winter. You're an okay worker, Greeny, Frank said that morning. Then he added, I've had better, but you're okay. You try to play it cool but failed, and your shit-eating grin embarrassed both of you. You get home later than usual on Thursday night in mid-July. You went for chicken and wings at Rookie's with the guys after work, and orange hot sauce stains mingle with the grass stains on your white t-shirt. Your face and arms are so tan it's hard to see your freckles. You light a cigarette and leave the ignition on so you can hear the rest of the song playing on the radio. All the Young Dudes by Mott and the Hoople leaks through the open windows and into the night, along with the smoke you exhale. It's dark and Carolyn's front porch light is burning. The final bars of the song play, but Carolyn's light is still on. You shut off the radio and the ignition, 
and that's when you hear the two-part whistle of that stupid cardinal. Then you hear it again, and you feel a twist low in your gut. Something is wrong. You hop out of the truck and run to her door, knocking and calling her name. When she doesn't answer, you pound on it with your fist. Somewhere close by, the bird is still whistling. You try the doorknob. It's unlocked. I'm coming in, you shout. Carolyn? The interior of the house is dim. The only light switched on is the one above the stove. In its weak glow, you see Carolyn lying on the kitchen tiles, face down. Her right arm reaches forward. Her left is pinned beneath her. Panic hits at the same time you realize you left your cell phone in the truck. Your eyes dart around the kitchen. You don't see a phone. You kneel next to Carolyn, afraid to touch her. You put your ear to her back. She's breathing. She mumbles something you can't make out. Hang on, Carolyn, you say. Then, I'm sorry. You turn her over and she moans. You check her head. It's not bleeding. She mumbles again. This time you understand. It's you, she says. You make a decision. Carolyn, you say. We have to go. I need to pick you up. Hang on, okay? Tears blur your vision. You lift the tiny woman in your arms. She weighs less than a full sack of grass seed. Hang on, you say again. Thirty seconds later, you're in your truck. Carolyn slumped against you while you crank the ignition and jam on the gas. You reverse into the street, and she falls forward. You hold her in place with your right arm, steer with your left hand. You repeat, hang on, hang on, hang on, in a tight, high voice, and you know you're begging. You feel her hand flutter and find yours. At this moment, you are struck by a vision of a much younger Carolyn. She is strong, laughing, blonde hair reflecting sunlight. She's wearing a halter top, jogging ahead of you, turning her head to call back, teasing you, green eyes the color of spring grass. Caro, you say in a gruff voice that isn't yours. It's not time yet, honey. She squeezes your hand. You arrive at the hospital ten minutes later, carrying Carolyn through the emergency room doors. Her heart, you tell the nurse at the intake station. Please. You rush to fill in the details of how you found her as an attendant brings a gurney. You set Carolyn on it. She's barely conscious but clings to your hand. It's okay, you tell her. I'm going to be right here. You go with them and I'll be right here. You know you're babbling. They wheel her away and you dig the heels of your hands into your eyes. We'll do everything we can, the nurse says, her voice kind. It may be a while before we know anything. If you want to go back home, get some rest. No, you say. I mean, thank you, but no, I'm just going to go have a smoke. I'm not leaving. I'll be right back. I'm not leaving. You walk back outside through the double doors, sucking in deep breaths of cool air. You climb into your truck, open the glove box, and tear open a new pack of Senecas. You smoke half of one before you break down, folding your arms over the steering wheel to hide your face while your shoulders heave. Your phone rings from its place on the seat next to you, and you think at first it must be the hospital. 
but remember you didn't actually give them your number. You wipe your nose on your shirt sleeve and look. Beth's name blinks across the screen. You leave it where it is, unanswered, stub out your cigarette, and climb out of your truck. You need to get back inside. You want to be there when Carolyn wakes up. You just listened to A Bargain at Twice the Price by Rebecca Cuthbert. Welcome to the post-story portion of the podcast. I'm your co-host, Melissa, here with JW. Hello. And we've got Rebecca on the show today to discuss this story and also to get to know the mind behind this work. Rebecca won honorable mention in Onyx's Winter Edition contest. So welcome and congratulations, Rebecca. Thank you so much. Hello. We are very excited to have you on the show today. Rebecca is the managing editor for Leapfrog Press, in addition to being an author herself. Her work has appeared in multiple publications and has received other honors as well. So let's find out more. Who is Rebecca Cuthbert? Okay, so um, I do a lot of things that have to do with writing and reading. So my career is kind of patched together with a lot of part-time and contract work. I am an adjunct at SUNY Fredonia in Fredonia, New York, where I teach writing classes. Um, As you said, I'm the managing editor of Leapfrog Press, and I have been with them on and off since 2012. Wow. I wish I could say that I worked really hard to get that job, but it fell into my lap. (laughs) And I've enjoyed it ever since. My friend Sarah Gerkensmeyer, who is another writer, had the position and she said, hey, you know, I'm moving. You should meet Lisa Graziano. And I said, okay. Oh, nice. And I had the job. So that was wonderful. <laughs> nice. That's, that's what always happens. Yeah. Connections. Those are good ways to do yes. it. Yep. Yes. And we're, we have a new publisher now, Tobias Steed. And we're linked up with Can of Worms Press in the UK. So we're sort of, we're international now, as we wow, like to say. Wow, expanding your reach. Terrific. Um, yep. I was a reporter for a local newspaper for a couple of years. I've written advertorials. I've written book reviews. But Um, My home is in fiction. My degree is in fiction uh, from West Virginia University. I got an MFA there, uh, graduated in 2011. So I do kind of a little bit of everything, which means I'm not an expert at anything. (laughs) I I know that feeling. Aren't we all kind of not experts at anything? (laughs) I think some people are, but I am there with you. I am there with you. I love to have my hands in a whole lot of pies, and it frequently gets me into trouble. Yeah, I can't focus enough on any one thing to say, like, ooh, I'm only going to do that. You know, I'll be <laughs> in the middle of writing a story, and then I'm like, oh, I want to write a poem, and I kind of forget what I'm doing with the story, and then I'll have to come back to it months later. Yeah. So, Yeah, in the middle of the poem, you're like, oh, that's a great phrase. I need to yeah. write a short story for that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I know that feeling. Excellent. That's good stuff. Well, tell us, usually we start off by getting into the story a little bit. So what's the inspiration behind the story? How'd you come up with the idea? Is there any um, truth kind of written into it? And, and I also want to ask, as, as you cover about the story, is why you chose the second person. So I mm-hmm. think that's fascinating. Yeah. And no, there are not many stories in second person. Right. And I, I love that. I really enjoyed it. So I'm curious about that too. Thank you. Um, I'll go into the second person first. That kind of kind of goes into the story. So um, usually I think you see second person in shorter 
short fiction, so flash mm -hmm. fiction, um, it's harder to sustain second person for yeah. a longer period of time. But this started in second person because it, it felt natural. And then in revising it, I tried to write it in third person and it was just wrong. And I moved it back mm. to second. And I think it had to be second for the kind of self-loathing bitterness yeah. that yeah. it starts with, because that's the voice we hear in our heads. When yeah, we're mad yeah. at ourselves, we say you. You know, Ooh, we yeah. say or do something stupid and we're like, oh, you idiot. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. so that second person. And so it, it just had to be second person because it's sort of a redemption narrative and it yeah. started in a low place and then it went lower. Um, it had yeah. to get worse before it got any better. And so it sort of had to be second person. Um, as far as the story itself, I do want to say that there was a real skip and there was a real Skip's truck and Skip lived across the street from me and he passed away several years ago. And he was, wow. he was sort of this Clint Eastwood type of person. <laughs> and he did smoke and he was kind of this man's man, you know, always coming over mm -hmm. to give my husband pointers with tools and things like that. And once I found a giant toad in my garden, which I don't know, it just scared the, I have a long history with toads <laughs> oh and that's goodness. probably a different story, but uh, my husband wasn't home. So I ran across the street and Skip came over <laughs> with a shovel and like gently removed this toad from my garden for me and, and just moved him farther into the backyard. But, um, and Skip passed away and for several months, his truck was parked in the driveway. And I mm. just thought about the history that truck had. Yeah. And so that was kind of the inspiration. It was, you know, I, I wanted to sort of write something with Skip's truck and the neighborhood is kind of, it's based on my neighborhood, but everything is blended, you know? So yeah. Caroline has traits of two different neighbors. Then there's fictional traits layered on top of those, of course. And yeah, sure. the sort of layout is somewhat like my neighborhood, but then it, you know, it departs in a lot of ways too. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Well, the truck comes in quite a bit later in the story, as I recall. So that's interesting. You had that idea, and mm -hmm. yet you built a quite a long narrative before you get there. Fascinating. Yeah, I like that too. I also thought it was really intriguing how the aspects of Skip's life kind of infiltrated your main character's life. I loved that. In a sense, he becomes him in a way. You know, he's really influenced by that. And I thought that theme kind of running through there was very elegantly done. Uh, and I, I, I just enjoyed that a lot. Thank you. Was that, that was on purpose, I'm assuming. Or did you, did you find that <laughs> you out as know. you were writing? Yeah, yeah I, wanted, um, I wanted Skip to be somewhat of like a, I don't know, spectral mentor or something um, mm, that, yeah. that, that the main character was sort of absorbing these capabilities and with the capabilities, some more confidence. And when you like yourself a little more, I think you can kind of do a little more and be a little happier. And I think hopefully that's that's where the character is going, you know, after yeah. he sort of starts his relationship with Caroline. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm. I like that a lot. I think it's just really nicely done. And Thank you. And you get that sense of, I love watching him grow. And it was fun to watch him take a little bit of a dive. And, it, you know, in some of these pieces, I have a tendency to write unlikable characters. 
And so you have to balance that unlikability and that self-loathing with with a likability that pulls you through to the rest of the story. You know, why mm -hmm. do I want to follow this character? And I'm and I was there for this. I was like, I like, but I was also just I really drawn to that second person. We, you know, when you're talking about doing that in um in flash fiction, we had another author who did that, and it was a very it was a flash fiction piece, and I mm -hmm. enjoyed that one as well. But it, it does bring you in because it's partly you and it's partly him. And another character that I loved is that bird. I loved that bird. The humor that was layered in here too. <laughs> just, I liked it. I just liked it a lot. This uh, story is, it's not, I wouldn't call it typical for me for a lot of yeah. these reasons. So, you know, it's the, um, this is part of a work in progress. So I'm working on a short story collection. Okay. And this is the only sort of longer form story that's in second person. I do have one or two flash pieces in second. And I don't often write happy endings and I don't often write male protagonists. And um, I wouldn't call a lot of them funny, but I did, like I found myself sort of cracking up at this guy. Yeah. He sort of made me laugh. And he, you mentioned unlikability and he was, I in my head I meant for him to be like more of a loser, like more unlikable. Yeah. But yeah. then I sort of found myself having this affection for him, you know, because Poor he's thing. kind of what he's like, through. yeah, he's like, an, he's an idiot, you know, he, he is a bumbling <laughs> idiot, but he's not terrible. You know, he's not yeah. a bad person. He's just yeah. real, real dumb and real inexperienced and doesn't know what the heck he's doing. Some redeeming characteristics, you know, in the right circumstances, he's finding his way. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And maybe that's it. Maybe, you know, I couldn't make him too unlikable because then he wouldn't be able to have that redemption arc that I wanted right. him so badly to have. Yeah. And that right, you're, ex right. you're excited for it. If they're bad enough, it's like, well, who cares? You know, they're so bad. Yeah. You don't really care. But yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah I wanted read some stories. Go ahead. I, just, I wanted someone that the reader could root for. Yes. Want yes, to do absolutely. better. Yes. Yeah. I was going to say, we've had some stories in our, our writing group, or a writing group that I'm a part of that were, and it was a, it was a book. And I mean, you know, we all agreed to read it. And um, a lot of people stopped like 10% in because they're like, they just like, I can't, I don't like the guy. You know, he just, he just I'm not, I don't yeah. care what happens to him. <laughs> so yeah. likability is at least somewhat important if you want someone to complete the story. It is. <laughs> But, well, so it's interesting. So what's on your backlist and what's on your future project list? So I don't, I don't know that I should be like saying this out loud, but I think I've been working on this for about 20 years. <laughs> something like that. We all have something like that. <laughs> this, uh, this, because a couple of these short stories that are in the collection, I actually wrote to get into grad school. Oh, so wow. they were part of my application materials. But of course, you know, the current stories are nothing like those original drafts. But um, that has been my main, I call it a passion project for, for mm -hmm. many years. And with my sort of patched together jobs, there are years that I don't get much of my own writing in at all. Mm -hmm. So I can imagine. Yeah. So, so time to write has kind of ebbed in and flowed over the years. This pandemic has been useful for me as a writer in ways because in in the sort of quietest days of lockdown i got back to stories that i hadn't touched since grad school mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so so yeah so i'm i'm going to be working on those for a while yet i'm hoping to start shopping the collection around this summer 
But in between right. those, I need to take little breaks. And so I write short essays and I write poetry and things like that and send it out. And that's kind of a, for fun, little projects in between working on this big project. That's great. Well, one of the questions I always like to ask the poets and the writers is, how do you approach poetry different and or do you than, you know, writing prose or writing a novel? Or short I, sh stories, or... I should start saying that I, I'm not a very good poet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that uh, <laughs> that uh, fiction, you know, fiction is my home and, and my sort of secondary genre, the one that I'm um, comfortable in is nonfiction. And so poetry is probably my least comfortable genre, but mm -hmm. I still write it sometimes. And I don't know that I approach it differently. Mm -hmm. I like narrative poems. I like to write narrative poems. Um, I like to write poems based on images. Um, the latest poem I wrote is about a cemetery and this big sign outside the cemetery that says, no dog walking allowed. And the poem is mm. a rant about how I don't want to be buried there because I love dogs so much and they're one of the only <laughs> good things we have in this world. And if they, you know pee on my grave I don't care so that's right. <laughs> uh, so that's that's out right now and um we'll see if they want it or not oh, that's, do you send a picture to go along with it like is this an ekphrastic poem or this, you just use a, it as an idea no I mean I I was driving by a cemetery that I drive by on my way to work and I, you know the sign jumped out at me this big like like rude block letters you know no dog walking allowed and I was just like it had come attitude. on <laughs> yeah. And it just, it bothered me that day. And so, you know, I, I just, the, the poem is really just me venting. Oh, okay. I like that. Mm. Some of the best writing comes from that, you know, those personal yeah. experiences where you're getting that out on the page. Well, I'm really curious about your position as, as managing editor for Leapfrog, Le I can't say Leapfrog Press. Oh my God. Leapfrog Press. It is kind of hard to say. <laughs> so can you talk about what you do on a day-to-day -day basis as an editor? I think that's really interesting, but also how that affects your writing life. Uh, so we are a, I'm going to call us a small but mighty staff at LeapFrog. Mm -hmm. So there are a few of us regular staffers, and then we contract with different editors as needed. And we have um, a, a team of readers who come in every year to help us for the fiction contest that we run. And I started at LeapFrog as the acquisitions editor. So I started sorting the slush pile. Mm -hmm. And we had a literary journal for a little bit called Cross Border. And mm -hmm. I read for that and put that together. And uh, I sort of left and came back. And then I tried to coordinate some author events for a little while. And then the pandemic hit. So like readings all, or what do you mean by all Yeah, tournaments? like um, book events at, at uh, bookstores and, you know, readings mm. and signings and things like that. And so then the pandemic hit, you know, and everything was off. And so we were quiet for a little while. And then we were acquired by the new publisher. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, I need a managing editor. And I had this sort of history of, you know, I'm, I'm at this point the longest leapfrogger. <laughs> so uh, he, he kind of got me in with the deal. Uh -huh. And so I've been managing editor for really just about a year now. 
Okay. And I do a little bit of everything. I do social media. I run the contest. Um, and I communicate with authors. And I edit books a lot of the time too. So, you know, if it needs a developmental edit, I'll do that. If we need a copy edit, I'll do that. Um, I also do proofreading, but I want to give Shannon credit. She's a much better proofreader than I am. So whatever I proofread, it then goes to Shannon because she'll catch whatever I, I didn't. <laughs> Always good. More eyes, the better. So you're doing novels. Yeah, we do. We do novels and we do collections um, okay. for the most part. We have a little bit of poetry and we have a little bit of nonfiction in our catalog, but we do primarily publish fiction. And so having all those responsibilities related to the field of writing and publishing, how does that impact your writing individually, you know, you as a writer? Yeah, because I can see that position being either stimulating because you get a lot of ideas. You're like, oh, yeah. When you surround yourself with what you love, you know, sometimes that's inspiring. Other people can inspire you, but that's your job, you know, looking at words every day, <laughs> all the time. So I can also imagine how that might be like, I just can't take any more words. So, so how does that work? I think I should be more sick of words than I am because, yeah. you know, I also teach writing and I'm always, uh, you know, grading yeah. stories and poems and things like that. Wow. Uh, but, you know, if I just, I spent all day on Wednesday copy editing a novel, like 12 hours. And wow. then when I stopped, I went and picked up the novel I was reading. So <laughs> I, I wow. don't know that I, I haven't gotten sick of words yet. I, I don't know if that'll happen. I think that working for Leapfrog has made me more understanding of the process, which I really appreciate as an author who submits things and who's yeah. you know trying to get their work out there. I can appreciate what the editors are doing, yeah. that journals and, and websites and these different publications, sometimes it's just one or two people. It's a small staff. They're doing the best they mm. can. Um, yeah. I also know how many submissions places get because with the fiction contest every year, we get something like between three and 500 submissions. Wow. Wow. So when you're only publishing, you know, Two, because now we have a YA middle grade category in addition to our adult fiction category. So we're, we're publishing two out of 500, you know? So wow. knowing that um, 498 of those are not going to get published, you know, it's sort of, wow. yeah. I don't know, you could say that it's discouraging and hopeful at the same time because obviously tons of those are good. It's really hard to, you know, narrow down that pool every year. Mm -hmm. But knowing also that it is possible you know, our our winner from last year, they were never published before. You know, they're mm -hmm. they were stunned that they won this contest <laughs> because, you know, it was um, K.L. Anderson. She said, well, I wasn't an author until you emailed me and I don't know what to say. Oh, um, <laughs> so and our um, Faith Sheeran, who won the, the YA middle grade category, um, she hadn't published fiction. She's a poet. So mm -hmm. it's like, you know, and we've had, so we've had authors all, all across the board, very prolific, very mm -hmm. widely published with impressive publications. And then we've had people who've never been published before. So I think more than anything, it, it makes me understanding and it does give me hope that there's a way for your work to get out there in the world, but you do have to be persistent and determined and kind of stubborn. I think like stubborn yeah. is the word for what writers need to be. 
mm -hmm. because you are going to get so many rejections, so yeah. many rejections. And Part so, process. yeah. And I think it, I think it is a, a skill you build to take rejections and use them as like validation. You know, I'm doing this, I'm getting my work out there. I'm sending it out there. I'm trying. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Good point. And I also, like um, it, I think that rejections can be helpful because they might encourage you to take another look at something you thought was done. So, okay, yeah. this poem has been rejected 20 times, you know, but I, I probably would look at it after a few rejections, but, um, <laughs> you know, always kind of taking a look at it and, and then sort of almost being glad that it didn't get published right away because you like the fifth version of it much better than you like the first right. version and sure. you never would have gotten to it without those rejections. So I think it's just kind of all part of the process and, and I am stubborn and I, I think that that <laughs> benefits me here. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So you don't feel like it impacts your writing. So your work doesn't prevent you from sitting down and cranking out. Well, it takes time away from it, I should say. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I'm, I think all writers who have other jobs, you know, we want more time and we never have more time. Yeah, so, sure. So, yes, I, I wish I had more time for writing. And that's something that is hard to find in any of my weeks. Yeah, yeah, sure. I think it's great though. It tells me that you're in the right place because you're hungry for words. And no matter how many words you've seen, you're ready to eat more. <laughs> I, I love that. And that tells you you're you're in the right field. You're in the right place. And and I'm guessing that you have a, a high satisfaction in your day to day. I do. I'm paid so very little for my jobs. I'm so, <laughs> I'm so financially unsuccessful. Oh. Um, but, uh, you know, as an adjunct and working part-time for press, so, but I, oh, it would take so much to lure me away from what I'm doing because yeah. I really do enjoy it so much. I enjoy being in the classroom with my students and talking about writing and talking about things we read together and and I love working for Leapfrog and I love the people I work with there. And um, so I don't know, it would have to like, it would have to be so much money, you know, that I just couldn't say no. Yeah. Well, you know, su success is different for everybody. So your definition of success does not have to be society's definition or anybody else's success for you may be exactly that and it doesn't it doesn't have to be financial mm -hmm. so i love i love that i think that's what we miss sometimes in in our culture like success is like oh top job top money top this mm -hmm. it's being content and satisfied and and feeling like you're doing the thing you love and that you're impacting other people with it and i know as a writer and as somebody who's editing you're impacting a, a great many people Thank you. Yes. And I do. Yeah, I do love my good. jobs. And I, I, I wish they, you know, especially the teaching gig, I wish that paid a little more because that's uh, the majority of my work week. But I do. I do really love being in the classroom. Yeah. Yeah. So important. I have, have a high uh, appreciation for any teacher, especially as my daughter has started kindergarten this past oh. year. Um, you know, what teachers have to do on a day-to-day -day basis. We've talked about this before on the show. It's a big deal. You give and give and give. And hopefully you're seeing in your students their growth and that's your some of your return, which, yeah. which money can't buy. Nope, nope. And I, yeah. I have great students. Oh. Well, college students are 
I took a you know many 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 years ago uh, some night classes, um, and I was only maybe out of the workforce for ten years or something, and I was just blown away by the difference of what that what a difference that ten years made in our perspectives on the world. You know, yeah. so I can't imagine if the kids that you see coming through their perspectives and insights are going to be completely different from anything that you probably would come up with on your own. You know. Oh yeah, they're sort of endlessly. I mean, they amuse me. They make me laugh. They mm-hmm. surprise me. Um, they make me mad sometimes, which yeah, I, sure. I tell them. <laughs> I'm a super honest teacher, so when they make me mad, I say so. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm not, you know, a scary teacher. I think that my mad is more like disappointed grandma, you know, than, yeah. than <laughs> authority figure. Um, but, oh, see, now I lost my train yeah. of thought, but. That's right. I kind of I'm the one that took us off on that. Just talking about students. Well, okay. So we're getting close to the end of our 30 minutes, which always goes by really fast. But before we kind of get to our last question, maybe time for one or two more. I'm curious, based on your now you know position in editing and everything else, are you a are you a discovery writer or a plotter? Like, how do you approach writing? Um, depending on the story, it's different. Sometimes I outline. Sometimes I plot things out and sometimes I just have to write my way to whatever the story is going to be. Mm-hmm. So um, for certain stories, I'll have an entire outline in my head, even down to the scenes. So I'll know what my crisis moment is going to be and I'll know what sort of ending I want and all of that. Um, well. It's not super frequent that I'm that organized mentally before I start a story. <laughs> With a bargain at twice the price, I did have to write my way to what happens to that main character. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this went through, you know, several revisions and, um, you know, I had to add scenes and I, I had to sort of make more at stake and I had to make things worse for him. Um, and then worse for him again before they got better. And, uh, you know, the bird kind of popped up out of nowhere. And so I think that mm-hmm. some things just, you know, they happen as you're writing, they're not planned and, and maybe it's better that way. Um, some stories yeah. feel like they sort of write themselves, you know, um, mm-hmm. If I were more into like new agey stuff, you know, I would think that that somebody else was writing those, but um, right, I'm, right, I'm not. That's all me. And so, you know, <laughs> that that can happen, and I love when that happens. But most of the time, it's just really a lot of hard work and rereading and refiguring. So, so I guess mm. I, I I kind of wish I were more of a plotter than I am because I think if I were, it would be easier on me. I, I feel right. the same way. I've said that before is when you plot something, you kind of fill it in. You have a really good direction when you're pantsing it, you're flying. You, not everything makes sense and you miss little pieces. And so you do have so many, and I'm, I'm a pantser, at least I have been. So it's like, okay, you have to get comfortable with so many revisions over and over again. When I feel like you have less if you plot. Yeah, but then sometimes with plotting, you feel like you're beholden to this structure and that's not always going to serve you. So I think even if you are a plotter, you have to be willing to let it go. Yeah. If it's Mm -hmm. not working, like, yeah, like you can't crowbar, you know, a story into uh, an outline that's not, not really what it it needs to be. Right. Because just because you plot it doesn't mean, doesn't mean your outline is, is great. Yeah. Like you may find a different <laughs> you may find a different path forward and you have to go with that. I mean that would be that would be wild. But 
yeah, yep. I think that's good. Hmm, interesting. Well, are there specific things that you like to write about? Do you have favorite subjects? Uh, so most of my fiction, not all of it, but most of my fiction is speculative in nature. So you could call it maybe slipstream. It's, you know, it's it's sort of <laughs> got one foot in literary and it's got one foot in, you know, speculative. Um, and that's what slipstream is for those of audience members who don't quite know, might not know what that is. One foot in the literary and one foot in kind of a speculative. Yep, realm. one one foot in a genre. And um, if there are elements of horror, I think in a lot of my stories, but it's like light horror. Um, I, I don't, I'm <laughs> not like a gore person, really. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I work with a lot of like implication, you know, so so things are maybe happening, but they're happening maybe kind of off camera or um, you're left to know what the ending is even if the the words don't quite get there gotcha. um, and so you know there's a little bit of you know i think there's some paranormal there's some supernatural there i like to write stories that I, they're not fantasy they're they're not in a different world you know mm -hmm. it's, it's always our world mm -hmm. but it's maybe skewed a little bit it's maybe just a little bit a little bit off like a little um oh disorienting okay mm -hmm. Almost like a Stephen King. I wish. I wish I could claim to be like Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's got that kind of thing. So when you're when you're putting together a short story collection, do they all have to match in theme? I think they have to fit in some way, but they don't have to match okay. up exactly. When I was younger, I had a friend's mom who dressed kind of wacky. And her daughter said, you don't match. And she said, things don't have to match to go together. Yeah. And so I think that the stories do have to go together in some way, but no, you don't need a perfect matchup. So I think I think everything that's in the collection and I think at this point I have all the stories drafted. So some of them are not done, some of them need heavy oh, revision, wow. but but yeah. they're all sort of there, they're all in place and a lot of them are done. And they're a little speculative in nature. They are all um that's kind of slipstream light horror. Yeah. Um but some you know some of them are are funny and some of them are not some of them have happy endings and some of them do not so i don't think they're <laughs> they're not all the same but there are a lot of themes that run through you know um transformation and uh redemption and um this the, the idea of being haunted um mm -hmm. the idea of of sort of fighting against something that feels faded so yeah. mm -hmm. so i think there are there are common themes to a lot of them. There's a lot of nature in my stories. I think I really, I love nature and it, and it often just yeah. kind of finds a way into all of the stories I write. So a lot of the stories are also about nature and humans and the relationship between them, which is often not great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You mean the relationship between humans and nature? Yep. That, you know, those are fraught and, um, and, and, in a few of my stories, I will say that like nature gets some payback, so they're kind of emotionally satisfying to write. Oh, interesting! <laughs> <laughs> really getting into the gooey stuff now. Yeah, <laughs> fun. So often I hear that in order to be a good writer, you need to read. So let's talk about that. And what do you like to read? And who has inspired you as an author? I agree absolutely that you have to love reading to be a writer. And I tell my students that all the time too. And some of them kind of groan at me because they, <laughs> they want to be a writer, but they don't want to be a reader. And that, that's just not possible. 
I, um, like I do not think I do not think that you can be a writer without loving to read. Um, that's like wanting to be a musician but not liking to listen to music, which is really strange, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, so that's odd. You have to love reading, and I've loved reading since I was a kid. I grew up in a small town down the road, Silver Creek, New York, and one of the best parts of summer vacations and weekends was going to the little library downtown. So we'd always get books out and and it was kind of this, I love the smell of it. I love the smell of old books. And now it's kind of more computers than books, which is a little sad because I loved kind of just we, when I was a kid, there was actually the old style card catalog where you had to like look up your subject and it was typed, not printed, you know, but typed out there. And so, you know, I I remember looking up ghosts and I would just go and find all those, um, like nondescript ghost story collections from like the 70s yeah. and 80s. The title was always just some form of ghost stories, you know, just some collection. <laughs> That's great. Um, and I read a ton of those. And as I got older, I started to really get into like Angela Carter, Margaret Atwood, Shirley Jackson, Mary Stewart. And so I kind of, I think I moved away from ghost stories into something that was more slipstream, something that was more sort of speculative, uh, less easy to define. But obviously, I still love ghost stories because I think I've got, <laughs> you know, three or four ghost stories in this collection. So Oh, nice. Wow, that's great. So yeah. I, I haven't traveled, I guess, too far from what I loved as a little kid. Yeah. <laughs> that's terrific. That well, I have an image of you with those card catalogs. My favorite thing about those is those drawers seem to go on forever sometimes. Yeah. You just keep pulling out yeah. and you go like way yeah. back and you had to like lean over yourself to get to them. It's so yep. fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I miss those too. I was born in 82. So I was, I think, kind of part of that generation where like we didn't grow up with technology. We had to start to learn it as like teens and young adults. You know, right. I didn't have a cell phone yeah. until right. college and all that. So I have like a little bit of like a nostalgic fondness for things like card catalogs and, and paper, you know, and, and yeah, writing yeah. things down with a pen. So, uh, but I, I think <laughs> well, that a lot company. of those stories that I used to read is that's probably why I'm maybe kind of an old fashioned writer because I like stories that still have an arc and I like to have a little bit of resolution, like some kind of resolution at the ending. So yeah, I think, you know, the stories I read have influenced what I write. Yeah, sure. Makes sense. And that's important. I like the way I write. Yeah. Yeah. You learn so much. There's something to taking a class. Uh, there's definitely benefit to that. And you're going to learn pearls that you, because you learn, you learn the rules, you know, there are rules to writing and tropes and everything like that. But there's a huge lesson within just the pages of a novel. If you look at somebody who is successful, um, you know, and you look at what they're doing, you can pick those things up from reading that, you know, and how the show versus tell, you get examples of that. So when you learn, hey, show versus tell in school, and you actually see the book acting that out, it's invaluable. So I I love that, that, you know, you're, you're telling your students and you're putting it out there that how important reading is, because it it is so Hmm. important. I I always think of it as, um, learning through absorption you know you just kind of have to expose yourself yeah and then from there you'll unwillingly maybe even take some of that in (laughs) yeah absolutely i think you have to you know you you should you should have favorite authors and you should try to emulate them and you know eventually you're going to come up with your own voice and your own style too but there's so much value in saying i like what that person's doing and i want to try to do it yeah i want to do it too i want to do that myself yeah. yeah, that's great. Good, good. 
All right. Well, I think we're about coming up on time. Is there any questions that we haven't asked that you'd like to talk about? I think we have pretty much covered it. And I okay. really appreciate right. being here and I appreciate your time. And I'm just so excited that my story placed in your contest and that it is going to be read <laughs> on your podcast. Thank you. Wow. Yeah. Well, terrific. Well, our last question that we have been asking and will continue to ask for the foreseeable future is, you know, you're an editor, publisher, writer. What kind of advice might you have for the burgeoning writer and or even a listener who is considering getting into writing? Uh, that you cannot do it in a vacuum. You have to have a community. Uh, there, you cannot sort of like, it's an echo chamber. If you're sitting in your room writing and you're the only one reading it and you're the only one sort of um, deciding what's working and what's not, you, you don't have a full picture. So yeah. mm, find point. friends who are writers. I'm lucky to have a lot of them yeah. and trade work back and forth. You know, um, yeah. start a, a thread on Facebook Messenger that is a workshop group, you know? So yeah. shout out to uh, Heather and Kima and Kelly and Sarah and West. And my other Sarah, you know, so you have to have those people in your life so that you you learn to look at your story from the outside because other people are looking at it from the outside. So you're not just thinking, oh, what do I want to do or what do I get or not get? It's it's yeah. what would my reader get or not get? What is finding its way and what is not and what is just way too subtle um, and what yeah. is cheesily over the top and you don't know that on your own yeah. so you need right you need other people you need a little a little writing community i like that's that. terrific yeah mm -hmm. that's really great all right well again thanks so much rebecca for coming on the show for yes. submitting your story it's a really fun story um redemption as you say uh it's got some good themes in it and i'm glad the judges picked it honorable mention so thank you again thank you yes. so much Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. If so, please help us spread the word by telling your friends or giving us a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Those reviews really make a difference. We'd like to thank the folks at Literature and Latte, the makers of Scrivener, for sponsoring the podcast and providing an amazing tool for writers. If you'd like to take your writing to the next level and use a tool designed for writers by writers, then give Scrivener a try. What have you got to lose? The Story Discovery Podcast is a free narrated podcast of the works that appear in Etched Onyx Magazine. Edited by J.W. McAteer, all stories and poems are available for free at onyxpublications.com. That's O-N-Y-X publications.com. If you'd like to support the continuation of this podcast, and or the magazine, please consider a small donation through Patreon at patreon.com slash onyxpublications. As a nano publishing house, we are always looking for new works to showcase. If you'd like to submit a story or poem for consideration, please visit the submissions page on our website. In the meantime, keep reading and writing.